This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. I said, must have been something to have all these great reviews through the years. He said, go back and read them. They're not great, none of them. I did, and it was astonishing. Only the revivals years later, he was way ahead of his time. Yeah, so he slammed in his own time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there you go. You know, you could be ahead of your time. You could be doing something that the, the reviewer just doesn't understand. But yeah. you're doing it right for the right reasons. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. At the age of six, sitting next to her father, who had recently returned home from the war, young Jane Alexander had her first experience of live entertainment. The impact of that performance set her on the road to being one of America's most beloved actresses. In this conversation, you'll also meet the nature-loving Jane, who found romance in science, but despite excelling at math, simply could not resist the casting call notices pinned to the bulletin boards in the university student union. You'll hear about the warning her father gave her, which liberated her from societal expectations, about a life-changing time in Scotland, and her inside-out approach to acting, plus her early experiences on Broadway before she earned her Emmys, Tony, and Golden Globes, and how she came at last to serve our country by chairing the National Endowment for the Arts. Miss Jane Alexander, I am so delighted to get this opportunity to chat with you. We've had a couple of years to get, you know, superficially acquainted through our service together on the Audubon board, but never have we really had a nice long time to just talk about life, the universe, and everything. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am so happy to be here, Kathy. I agree with you. We never did have time for that conversation. Yeah, well, we'll do it now. And just so people know the context here, I'm sitting in Columbus, Ohio, and Dear Jane is in one of my very favorite places in the world, Nova Scotia. She's down the shore a ways from where I lived in Halifax. It's a wonderful place. You are such a lucky soul to live there. Yes, I am. I agree. <laughs> so Jane, let's start as we always do on this podcast back at the early days of Jane Quigley Alexander. And tell me about it, a little bit about who you were at age five. What was your your early years like? And your family like? Age five, I was still with my mom and brother living with another family on the Frederick Law Olmsted estate 
in Brookline, Massachusetts during the war because our dads were at war. Every dad I knew was at war. Wow. And the surgeons, my dad was an orthopedic surgeon and uh, so was the husband and father of the other family who we lived with. We were renting the small house of Frederick Law Olmsted, who had been dead for years, but his draftsmen, his landscape architects were still there working through the war, nine of them. So they were right in a little corridor right off the second floor in a big draftsman room. So it was a wonderful experience. But uh, five years old, that was my introduction to beauty living at the Olmsted estate. He had designed his house and it was just magical. There were sunken gardens, little sunken gardens. There was a big magnolia tree that would bloom in the spring. It was spectacular. We had free run of the place. Our mom said, don't you dare go near those architects. They're working away in their landscape designs. But we would sneak in because it was so easy. (laughs) (laughs) And they loved it. I mean, these little moppets, five of us from my mother and the other family, uh, my brother and I and the three others, we'd go in and they would stop work right away. And they would ask us about our days and they would say, go out to the vegetable garden if it was spring or summer and pick what you want for your moms. Of course, that was a real treat. So I grew up just loving the beauty of the landscape and what the landscape can do for the birds and the bees primarily. Yeah. And how long did you stay there? I mean, at at age five, that would have been 1944. So there was still another year of the war itself. And then some of the reconstruction afterwards, which I imagine your dad kept busy through a lot of that too. He did, Kathy. uh, A lot of the, um, the doctors stayed on. Dad and his group, which was the fifth general hospital from out of Harvard, mainly and other kind of Ivy League colleges, had gone over to the war early to help the Brits. Then they were the, some of the last to leave because after Normandy and all the, and the horrors of, um, uh, of the French coast, you know, there was a lot there were a lot of wounded to take care of. So they were in France right through, I think he came back in the fall of 45. Wow. Hmm. And what kind of kid were you in those early days? I mean, loving the land, a bit adventurous. Was the play acting showing up already? (laughs) Well, I was always a show off. You know what a show off. (laughs) (laughs) Always saying, oh, watch me dance. Come on, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yeah, I was always that. But the idea of something called theater was never part of my ken because we didn't have anything but radio during those years. And my mom and and um, the other mother were listening to the news when it came on in the night. So there were no shows that we listened to. We created our show, own shows, if you will, and just playing, kids playing. And then I was climbing trees a lot. And there were beautiful trees on the Olmsted Estate, investigating everything that was in the garden. So, yes, I was into outdoorsmanship early on. Yeah. And then your dad comes home finally in 1946 or so. And what happens with the family then? Where do you move to? And We moved to a house in Brookline, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, right on the border of Boston and, and uh, Brookline, and uh, next to the Muddy River. And 
dad went to work at Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, which was became the women's free hospital, was the women's free hospital, where I had been born. And uh, my mother's obstetrician who birthed me was John Rock, one of the inventors of the birth control pill. So for better or worse, I think in many cases worse, my mom was a guinea pig for the birth control pill in those years, late 40s, early 50s, which only meant she was getting much too much of the pill. It caused some real problems for her physically, uh, hormonally and everything later. But uh, the yeah. wonderful thing that happened after dad came home and we were living in that house in Hawthorne Road was dad decided one afternoon that he'd like to take me out by himself to the ballet. And by this time, I was uh, six. And the Royal Danish Ballet was performing in Boston. I had never seen anything on stage. I had never seen any television yet. There wasn't really anything yet. And that was the seminal experience of my young life. Really? What do you remember feeling or thinking? I'm getting chills. At I'm getting chills right now thinking about it because it was so overwhelming. I had no idea that anything like this could exist in the world. And my sitting next to my handsome dad, just back from the war, you know, <laughs> seeing the how the dancers could fly through the air. It was remarkable. And I something in my brain said, oh, my gosh, that's where I want to be. I want to be up there, part of that. And did that start a, a train of lots of imaginings of being on stage? How did that carry forward in your, in your head and your heart? Absolutely. It started it. Didn't have any real theater to do in, in nursery school. But I did certainly when I got to um, not first, second, third grade. And then I, I just wanted to be star in every single play. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> I, I just say, no, I, I did not subscribe even then to there are no small parts. There are only small actors. I did not. I said, no, there are big parts and I want one. <laughs> <laughs> there may not be any small ones, but there are some big ones yes. and I want those. <laughs> so that bug really, really got to take form in you in early elementary school. When there was a bit of a bit of performance or theater or skits or something to do. That's right. There was always a school play and we had a good basic auditorium. But there was an after school program a, a little bit later. And Ruth Brown, who ran it, she she was a drama teacher, but I never saw her during any school hours. We didn't have any drama in the school, but she did have it after school hours. And I subscribed to that all the time. I would go to that and she made a huge difference in my life. In um, It was about my junior year. I was in her after-school program for quite a number of years. And I performed in whatever, whatever shows we did. I, If I didn't get the lead, it didn't matter. I did do the small parts. And I learned a lot about backstage work. And I did summer stock theater in the, in the summers. On the technical side or acting? On the technical side, because when you go in at the age of 15 or 16, as I did, it was always helping out technically yeah. and playing small roles on stage with these actors that you, I adored, you know, the, the older professional ones. But um, Ruth Brown said, she pulled me aside one day after everybody had left and she said, Jane, I don't know what you're thinking about for college, 
but I think that you can make a life in the theater. Really? At 15, she said that? 16 or 17, yeah, because I graduated 17. And I was just, nobody had ever said anything like that. Yeah. What was your parents' reaction to your performing along the way? Because your dad's a surgeon, your mom's a nurse. They've not grown up going to theater or stage or in an era of a lot of television or there wasn't television. So what did they make of this interest of yours and how did they react to it? Well, my mom was a Nova Scotia girl by way of my grandparents here, but she grew up in Boston. She had no idea, as you're, you're right, about what theater was. She really didn't like the idea of my thinking of a career in it because she thought it was stupid and frivolous. I think that's I think that's what she thought. However, my dad was had been at Harvard. He'd got a scholarship as a gifted child at 16 years old. And in 1929, he and a group of Ivy League folks had the university players. And they performed in Summerstock and Cape Cod. And my dad was one of them. And Henry Fonda was one of them. No way. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart was one of them. Oh, wow. Nina Foch, Bertain Windust, Josh Logan, who became a great director, all were part of the university players. And dad was part of it was for two or three years when he was wow. at Harvard. So he loved the theater. And I'm glad he went into medicine because he was a, one of the actors that he was a wonderful, funny, great man. But he would always be a ham when he was performing, you know, a little oh, bit yeah. too much over the top, <laughs> which you couldn't do if you were working with somebody like Henry Fonda or Jimmy Stewart. You know? Yeah, I suspect yeah. not. <laughs> wouldn't take kindly to that. <laughs> so my dad was all for it. And he said to me, he said, you have to have an ace in the hole, though. So, because okay. It's going to be very hard to make a living that way. It's going to be very, very hard to even get work. And then he said an amazing thing. He said, and you know, you may never get married because many actors don't get married. They're married to their profession. I said, well, that for me was such liberation back then in the 50s where we were supposed to go to junior college girls, two years of college, not four, two years of college, graduate and get a husband. That's it. Yep. My mother's story. Yep. 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 So my dad was really a, my, my major figure in my life. Yeah. And when he said that, and then he blessed me going off. And fortunately, Kathy, I did make, uh, make a living pretty soon. You know, yeah, quite soon. But you had what was it? Math. Your backstop was mathematics. Sort of thinking already about computer programming. I understand. That's right. Well, IBM had just come on the scene. IBM was the big Megillah, and um, the Fortune 400 was a computer <laughs> that probably took up the size of half the Pentagon. You know? <laughs> I did get to visit it years later when we were doing a play at Arena Stage about computer science, and and we got to go and see that Fortune 400. It was absolutely remarkable to walk into this huge building in this maze of moving and 
And to think that now we can just have our phones and everything more than was ever on that computer. But so it was very romantic to be thinking about computer programming for IBM. Yeah, I can see that. And I had been a math major at college. Like you couldn't, I mean, at high school and in college because you couldn't major in it, really. I, I went to Sarah Lawrence. There was no major. But that was going to be my ace in the hole. Okay. Yeah. So what year was it you graduated from Sarah Lawrence? I never graduated from Sarah Lawrence. I took my oh. junior year abroad at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Aha. Uh-huh. I had promised my father that I would be a good girl. Good girl. He never asked for me to be a good girl. But I promised him that I would concentrate on math so that I would be able to have the skill to be. But I would go to the the union of students and I would see this bulletin board with casting calls and I couldn't resist them. I couldn't. (laughs) So right off the bat, I played Ophelia in Hamlet in a student. Wow. So you would have been like 20, 21. That's your junior year. Yeah. I went over there. I was 19. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And then I turned 20 during the year. Yeah. So I did Ophelia and in Hamlet. And then I did uh, Nora. Oh, this beautiful role in Sean O'Case's The Plow and the Stars. Oh. Stunning play about war. And then I was cast in Orpheus Descending, and the student production was part of the Edinburgh Fringe. And then I was on the map. I was on the map of Edinburgh then with the reviews that the play got, we got. It was the hit of the Fringe other than a student group from down in England called Beyond the Fringe, which was (laughs) Dudley Moore and John Cleese and all these crazy people. And (laughs) we hung out with them afterwards. It was a small festival then. There was only about, you know, maybe 20 productions or, and then at the fringe part of the real festival and the fringe part, there may be the same amount of student productions and stuff. But God, it was fun. We had such a great time. So you have to tell us more about what it was like to be hanging out with young Dudley Moore and John Cleese. And you've you've had a couple of great roles. You can sort of feel the the opportunity growing within you. What what did you guys talk about? I mean, were you all were you all dreaming of making it on the big stage? Were, what was that conversation like? I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote a lot of the skits for be, for that group Beyond the Fringe. Alan, something I want to say, but can't remember. Oh, and then there was the great director who has since passed away, Jonathan Miller. He became incredible. Well, he was kind of the intellectual. And Dudley was just a goofball, but so much fun. <laughs> and as I say, we didn't get to see them much during the day because a lot of us, as being students, we'd sleep a lot during the day and then we'd have our work at night and then we hang out in the bars, the, the pubs later. God, it was it was heady. It was very heady. And it was what I wanted. So I wrote my father and I said, Dad, I'm coming back, but I want to go right to New York and be an actress. And he was not happy with that. He said, come on, Janie, you can go back to school. Well, by this time, most of my friends had already graduated because my friends had been juniors and seniors when I left. for So I didn't really want to go back to Sarah Lawrence. It didn't have enough theater for me really to get interested in it. Right. 
Certainly not after what you had in Edinburgh. So dad and I reached a stalemate. I audited. I, it was too late to, uh, to actually uh, apply for colleges anyway. So I audited some courses at Harvard and Radcliffe, but that wasn't doing it for me. Did a couple of shows in Boston, you know, off, off Boston stuff. And then hit the ski slopes right after Christmas and, and didn't come back till the spring. <laughs> I never knew you had a phase of ski bum in you. <laughs> I was a ski bum for a whole winter. And then a friend of mine from Sarah Lawrence, a gal from Texas, called me up and she said, Jane, you still want to be an actress? I said, yeah, sure, I do. She will get your butt down here to New York. I got a job for you in an in a agent's office. I'm leaving next week. It's $40 a week. Take it or leave it. All right. I took it. Yeah. <laughs> I took it. Did you manage to get her apartment too? <laughs> no, that's a good one. I didn't. <laughs> I had to room with three of my fellow Sarah Lawrence colleagues. And that was sort of great Very too. fun. How long was it between the start of your $40 a week job and... I mean, you debuted on Broadway at this you know, ripe old age of something like 24. <laughs> so one of my questions is, you know, what's it like to be a stand-in? I mean, I, you know, the stereotype is you wake up every morning and see if the lead is alive. And if they are, you go off on your way. But that, I, that's the fun stereotype. But I'm sure that's not really what a stand-in does through the course of a day. If, if you, you're not performing the role, what are you doing? Or maybe you are just... Hit the bars all day because Sandy's still alive. <laughs> well, in those days, we were called understudies, and we still are. There's understudies. And um, a, th a Thousand Clowns was the show, and it was a huge hit with Jason Robards, a comedy, and Sandy Dennis. And um, in those days, you had to come to the theater every night. That was the first, at least the first six months I was standing by for her. And... Um, I went on a couple of times, but not with Jason Robards, how I wish I had. I went on with his replacement, Dane Clark, who was mainly a film actor, came in. And I went on with him, which was fine, but it wasn't being... Wasn't Jason. Yeah. yeah. And what would you do? Just be in the audience and watch the show or watch it from backstage? or I would watch it a lot just because I thought... Sandy, there was nobody like Sandy Dennis. You'd have to Google her and look at her. And yeah, I mean, and I remember her. I mean, she was just fabulous. Off her, her own self, kind of ditzy, kind of wonderful, kind of very contained. And um, Jason was very naughty on stage at that time. Oh, my goodness. If the audience was just cheering and laughing at something, he would come out to the front and just talk to them. Say, say <laughs> So you like that, huh? Well, break wait, the fourth wait wall. See this. <laughs> Director's pulling his hair out. <laughs> I think he was just bored, and uh, it was also the time back in the, the the early '60s where there was a culture of drink. That's the only way to describe it. Men and women. I didn't drink at that time much, and I didn't take uh, the drugs of choice, which were <laughs> coming up. Fast marijuana, to name one, but uh, a number of people that I knew did. So a lot of a lot of people performing were in their cups already. Oh wow, yeah. So that was sixty three, 
And if you miss Jason Robards, that's too bad. But just a couple of years later, you snag a lead role opposite the wonderful James Earl Jones. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, by this time, I knew that I wanted to concentrate on the classics. By that, I meant Shakespeare, Chekhov, Ibsen, and I even included the American classics. By this time, they were Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, the the great plays. So I knew I had to go to regional theater for the most part and do do some. And the first thing I got cast in was at Charles Playhouse in Boston in um, a George Bernard Shaw play. So then I became a kind of known as a Shavian heroine and did quite a bit of Shaw, my favorite of which was um, Major Barbara and Shaw's St. Joan, which was the first play I ever did at Arena Stage. That's in Washington, right? Yes. Yes. And Ed Sharon was the main director there. And he hired me to play St. Joan in the first year of rotating repertory theater. Excuse me, no, that we the next year was the rotating rep. So I became a member of the company in Washington, DC, which was those were my most the most exciting years I've ever had in the theater. Um, and one of the plays we did in the third year was The Great White Hope, which had been given a $25,000 grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to develop the play to the playwright Howard Sackler at Arena Stage. And this was a humongous production with 63 actors, 40 of whom were black, uh, playing over 200 roles. The first performance at Arena Stage went over four hours. Oh, my goodness. It was epic. Yeah. It was about race relations for sure. It was James Earl Jones played um, Jack Johnson. We call him Jack Jefferson in the play. Jack Johnson, who won the heavyweight championship title in 1910, infuriating all the white boxing bigots. And they set out to get him. This is a story. They set out to get Jack Johnson. So the play was written about Jack Jack Johnson, and I played his white mistress. Jack Johnson had three different white women in his life sequentially, and and he paraded them around Dallas, Texas, which probably wasn't a good idea. <laughs> Maybe um, not. <laughs> he was a bold, remarkable man. Yeah. And one should read about that extraordinary man and how they brought him down. Yeah. I could spend two hours just talking with you about all the works you've been in, stage and television and film. And my God, the list of people you work with, you've rattled off a couple of names already, but it's sort of like every marquee name that is ever registered in my geologist brain from the theater and film world. But I'm also really curious about some of the meta questions of being an actress How do you, I don't even know quite how to put these intelligently, so they may sound stupid and sloppy, but to what degree do you become a character when you get a role? I mean, what what is that like to try to so understand or so inhabit another person in a very different place and time often, and to do that so well that it's it comes across the audience as credibly that person in that time? How do you do that? You know, it's a good question, and it it changes a lot. 
I've always felt, certainly in my experience, that actors approach a role from two different ways, and both work. For example, my friend uh, Ed Herman, who went on to play FDR when I did Eleanor Roosevelt, he worked from a character from the outside. He would say, okay, how does he look? Well, we know what Eleanor, but how am I going to capture this from the outside? And I was never able to do that. Let's not even take somebody famous like those people because they have different ways of approaching how we take that role on. And I can talk about that a little bit later. But I could only know what a person was wearing or how they were walking or how they were talking if I could somehow understand something that was inside of them. So it always takes me longer than most of my colleagues in the business to find the role and the character. But I'm not alone in this. There's many people who work, from, as, as I say, from the inside out. How do you get that? I mean, is there research you do to do that? Or sometimes you're playing a character about whom you know, nothing much has been written except what the playwright wrote. How do you get there? Yeah, exactly. How do you get there? Well, in my old age now, I'm I'm far more experienced than I was when I was younger. So when I was younger, I was relying on methods of, in many respect, the method too, which is the, the one that's descended from Stanislavski. Stanislavski was a kind of genius that we all read the books. And I ne- although I never, I was asked to be part of the act- actor's studio and I declined because after visiting three times, I couldn't stand the sycophantish behavior that was uh, occurring with um He's gone out of my head, the man who was teaching, Lee Strasberg. And it didn't seem right to me. So I I went with another person who was teaching acting when I was younger. I'll get to what you asked in a minute. But but she had a very, uh, a, a way of approaching a role that involved certain intellectual decisions that one made, that one imposed on the road, like words like doing, feeling, that kind of thing. And I went with that for a couple of years, and and it it just wasn't clicking. It was like I had to go through this intellectual web in order to get to something inside. So I abandoned all of that. And I just began to, the technical things I needed to work on were being seen, in other words, taking the stage when one needed to take the stage, and being heard because that's what is incumbent upon you as an actor for the audience. And I was not even doing that properly. So technically, I worked on those things. And the other way, I would read the script an awful lot. I'd read the script, and then I would just think about, if I could come up with pictures, I would pour over pictures of women, I think, might be at that time. For example, let's just take St. Joan. What What must she have been thinking Well, she had this incredible faith, didn't she? She had this faith in St. Michael that he was going to give her the answers. So I begin to explore what it means to have a great faith like that. And I start from that as my grounding that allowed her to go into battle. She was going to be okay because he had come to her. And at one point... I remember when I was doing Eleanor Roosevelt, which was, as I say, it was a little more difficult because it is incumbent upon the the actor to understand that this is a famous person 
And even though you're not going to be able to ever impersonate them exactly, you have to find a way to tell the audience, this is the same. This is Eleanor. This is Eleanor. And I was having a very rough time with that because, well, I could I could do it, right? I figured out very early on that she had she had uh, no um, diaphragmatic action in her belly, probably because because her voice was she was a big woman, but she was speaking only from this part up. Yeah, just her neck and up. Yeah, R- mostly this. Yeah, uh. and one wondered why. I mean, she was five. 11 or six feet almost and uh, weighed a considerable amount. It wasn't like, but she had grown up in a corseted time and she'd had a very, very rough childhood. Really, Uh, really, really rough. Her mother and uh, her mother's sisters were known as the Hall sisters. They were the great beauties of New York society. There was not a beauty. Must've been really, really hard for her. Her father died when she was 10 and so on. So, but I, so I was lucky. Uh, we had two years before the series Eleanor and Franklin was filmed by um, ABC back in the mid 70s. And I would go to Hyde Park a lot and I'd pour over p- pictures. I'd pour over letters of Helena's. I'd listen to all the tapes. When I was cleaning the house, I'd listen to her voice on the tapes. And, and when I figured out finally why she was in that high pitch all the time, and that it was probably lack of diaphragmatic action because of the corsets and her shyness and as a child. Then bingo. The other one was a bingo one day when I was looking through the pictures and I came up with a photograph. She was 14 with her pony and she's standing by her pony. And I zeroed in on that face and I said, oh, my God, I know what she's feeling. I know this face. So I ran with it. And those are the, those are the kinds of moments that come to me. I don't go to them. They kind of come to me. Fascinating. So the other end of the scale, when a run has finished or the filming has finished, and you've you've really gotten that sense of how to be Eleanor and be, you know, bring her back to reality, as it were. Is it hard to shift? Can you drop that character? Like as soon as the director says cut, it's your mind shifts or is there some lingering tale to inhabiting a character that way? Some things that stay with you from certain characters. And I have a hard time imagining it's an on off switch. Now I'm Eleanor. Now I'm not. It would seem to me there's got to be a little more of sort of easing into it and coming down out of it. But that's what I'm trying to understand. My husband, Ed said during the time I was doing the Eleanor and Franklin series, he said, well, Jane, you are really lovely to live with, but you weren't very sexy. <laughs> and I can imagine that. <laughs> you know, I think I do hold. I I know I hold on to a lot of things. I know that in the in the uh, years that I was doing um, the Great White Hope, my character was really very depressed and ultimately suicidal and took her life. And I was very much depressed during those. It was just very hard to take to shake off those emotions because what does happen on stage, you know, there would be some really violent scenes between James Earl and myself where he was hitting me with a towel and I was crying and blah, blah, blah. You can't fake that stuff. You can. I mean, you can. You can. 
but it's just not something that I gravitate to the well, you're not going to get a Tony for it <laughs> like you yeah. did. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, anyway, it, yeah, so it it takes a lot out of you. Now, it takes a lot out of any actor, usually physically, but particularly those people who are playing tragic roles. Yeah. I would never do uh, O'Neill's um, Long Day's Journey, and tonight I've been asked to do it a number of times. I just can't go into that place where Mary Tyrone is. I will not do it. So I knew it would take me right down. So, yeah, unfortunately, I do live with it. I love to do comedies, <laughs> but I don't get asked very often. Well, you're so good at so many things. Thank you. You know, another curiosity question I've long had about the profession is, uh, especially at the career I was in, there's really much more objective basis for judging how well you've performed. I mean, it, you know, you landed the airplane well or you didn't, right? But in, you know, in the world of gymnastics or or acting, there's so many lines of judgment. I mean, you're, how you are seen, how you are regarded, how the performance you're in is regarded is, you know, it's subject to this, this swirl of opinions and reviews and emotions. And I'm curious, do you just shut that out and ignore it? I mean, and I mean, sometimes I would imagine the review perhaps clashes, you know, you just did a piece of your finest work on stage and the outside world doesn't give it the regard that you would hope. How do you handle those clashes and dissonances between what I know I did on stage and you know, I just did a 10 for sure, a 10 performance on the floor mat and the judges gave me an eight and it's just the politics of favoring another country or something might be at play. How do you handle that? I don't think I handle it well, but I don't know any actors who really do. I can imagine. It's not quite like, I mean, you know, in in an athletic performance, I presume you know if you've done well or not. And if you've hit a 10 and they give you an eight, then something's really off, you know? I think you often can know if you know that was the best game you ever played or you know that was the best one you ever did. But then you're going to be, you know, stacked up against other people and you may come out a seven or a six or a 10. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it hurts. And I remember there was an Irish actor in our company in Washington, D.C. at Arena Stage. And I had just done the lead in one of the productions there. And the review came out in the Washington Post. And I wasn't even mentioned. And I said, whoa, well, he sure didn't like me, I guess. And this Irish actor said, this is the worst thing that could have happened. I said, well, I'm glad he, if he didn't like me, he just didn't spew all this. He said, no, that doesn't matter. You have to be mentioned, good or bad. Oh, interesting. <laughs> They'll talk about you that way. Just spell my name right. <laughs> and I said, Jim, really? And then later in, in the later years, I began to understand, well, he was probably right about that for your career. But it always hurts. I found it always hurts. If I read a review and it was negative and didn't quite get what I was doing or didn't like, and and I got many of them, but I wasn't alone. I remember talking with Edward Albee. I did a couple of Albee's plays in the later years. And I said, must have been something to have all these great reviews through the years. He said, go back and read them. They're not great. None of them. I did. And it was astonishing. Only the revivals years later. He was way ahead of his time. Yeah. So he slammed in his own time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
So, you know, there you go. You know, you could be ahead of your time. You could be doing something that the, the reviewer just doesn't understand, but yeah. you're doing it right for the right reasons. And is it the same kind of thing when it comes to nominations and awards like the Tonys or the Obies or the Oscars? I mean, that's also a morass of, you know, voters and opinions and viewpoints and the lens through which some judge looks at that year's films or that year's plays. I think so. I think so. I don't pay as much mind anymore as I used to. First of all, there's so many awards today. It's just gotten out of hand. It's all about media, 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 advertising, advertising, flogging the poor actors to death with all the celebrity. (laughs) It's very tough, um, I think, today. I don't pay as much mind. I also was at a time in the 1970s where I watched, um, I highly admired George C. Scott refuse refuse awards, refuse the Oscar when he won it for Patton. And Marlon Brando also refused an award. And um, it was in the air and and it was right to be talked about. And the talk was this, how can you compare apples and oranges? You can't. We're all different and we're all doing great work. I mean, it was like apples to oranges to cars to gorillas. I mean, that's wild, wildly different things. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you don't hear anybody saying that anymore because it's kind of hush hush. Let's just keep it down. Keep the media machine growing. Yeah. That well, that crank turns the box office crank. So you want to keep it moving. So in the early 90s, you had an interesting career shift. And I hadn't realized till I was looking all the background up, that you went to Washington to lead the National Endowment for the Arts uh, right around the same time I went to Washington as the NOAA chief scientist, both of us appointed by Bill Clinton to those roles. Yeah. Yeah. So we we have, well, we have what what I will call the fun of the 104th Congress in common. So (laughs) I, I wish we had video on this podcast. You would have Love to see the eye roll I just got for that remark. Oh my god! <laughs> but let's start with let's start with what does the National Endowment for the Arts do? You commented it had given the Arena Stage a grant back when to put on the production of of Great White Hope. But what all does it do? Well, it celebrates the artists and the arts organizations across America by giving them grants or matching grants in their community for the most part, so that they can do and develop more art for the community. Okay. So would you make individual grant decisions or sort of set the broader course of the organization and others would read all the proposals and do all the granting? What what were your days like? Yeah, I had a staff of, uh, in the beginning, over 300, and then it right away, we'll talk about the 104th. We'll talk about that. (laughs) They are responsible for pulling together panels of a jury of their peers in different disciplines. The literature panel was outstanding, for example, with all kinds of leading writers be chairing an individual panel and getting leading writers from across America to come. I loved the organization back then. That was in the 1994. And then I did, there were a small percentage of grants that I could just allocate on my own as chairman. And I I would take advantage of that too. 
I did. I did give some individual grants up to thirty thousand dollars for individual artists or, or or organizations I felt were worthy. And when you went to NEA, did did uh, Clinton give you a an agenda to help go fulfill? Did you? I mean, I've been struck when I come to my appointed jobs. People somehow always say, and, and you know, what's your priority going to be? What are you going to? What stamp are you going to put on that agency? as if the agency doesn't have a mission that's inscribed in law and your job is to lead it in the performance of that mission. It's, I think people imagine it's much more personalizable that I'm going to make the State Department do this or I'm going to make the NEA do that because it's my turn. What was your sense going into that job of what was coming, what to do, what strategy or agenda to try to fulfill? Well, I know exactly why I was there. The, the agency was under attack from conservatives in Congress for a couple of egregious grants they felt were egregious to primarily Maplethorpe for photographer, homoerotic photographs, and Andre Serrano for also a photograph that was uh, labeled Piss Christ because it was it was rather a large photograph, very gorgeous in gold colors and bubbles uh, of a of a crucifix kind of caught in bubbles of um of liquid and it, he labeled it piss christ and the idea of the photograph was jesus christ could be found on the street today and we wouldn't know it it was really a beautiful thing but it was considered egregious by members of congress and conservative and religious so those were the two major grants that I was really brought in to deal with because my predecessor under Bush had been told just to stop all kinds of things that were insensitive in one way or another, homo, homosexual grants, anti-religious grants, and so on. Hmm. I was brought in to defend the First Amendment which I didn't have any problem really doing personally, because as an actor, everything, everything human is not alien to us. You know, it's all part, we're part and parcel of so many things which are in our nature. We've been given in our brains. So I didn't have any problem defending it. The problem was that I had to try to prevent embarrassing the president. I'm sure you've heard this. Yep. Too. Yep. yep. Don't embarrass the president. <laughs> I didn't quite know how to juggle those two things because I was the butt of a lot of media attention at the time. They wanted to know how I was going to deal with these grants, which, by the way, had not been given to the individual artists, but to uh, museums of the highest quality, including the Corcoran Art Gallery, which was right across the street from the White House, you know. So, and it was a grant to the galleries or to exhibitions, and it was only one or two pictures in those. So it was it was juried by their peers, and I had no problem with that. I loved these museums. I talked to the people who who ran them, the curators. I said, fine, that's up to you. If you want to do this in your community, that's up to you. But it got an awful lot of negative attention. And then when the 104th Congress. And for those who don't remember the history, this is Newt Gingrich as Speaker of the House and his contract 
for with America, contract for America, and a very, I will use the word, uh, draconian vision of how much slashing and cutting of the federal government should happen to right-size it for, for their view of what roles government should, the federal government should and should not have. There was a lot, lot longer list of, of roles the gov- federal government should not have than should have. <laughs> yes, thank you, Kathy. That's exactly right. And, uh, and of course, um, the NEA and the NEH were top of the hit list. Yeah, National Endowment for Humanities. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think about our climate with respect to public support of the arts these days? Public support of the arts is pretty terrific. It actually is. The budget, I should say, by the end of my four years in 1997, the budget of the NEA had been slashed by half, virtually. And they had gotten rid of all individual grants except for literature. And I wanted to stand up in Congress and say, literature? That's how the revolution began. <laughs> Why would <I> mean, you? <laughs> but you let's know, talk what... about a few books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's talk about Tom Paine. <laughs> yeah, it was a really, really tough. Yeah, it was very combative. I mean, it was not. This was not some civil debate about A versus B. This was, and it, and look, if you read the rhetoric in the contract for America, and if you followed the conventions of that year, uh, as I did, in my experience, I would say this is one, the really, uh, this is combat, not politics rhetoric started to flood the ground. And of course, it continues much to this day. Yes, I'm, I think you're spot on there, Kathy. Did you find problems there you had as well in your agency? Nowhere near as much. I would say you know, the sciences for all of my working career have largely been a tranche of things that members of both party, elected or not, viewed as it's just science. You know, two plus two is four. And there's not a Republican and Democratic version of that question. So that's why people like me have been able to serve under many presidents of each different party because they just wanted to know the physics and the science and the engineering as one part of the equation for making a decision. Not the whole decision, but you know, one input that's not malleable, depending on your political worldview. That, I think, started to erode in those years, or maybe the pace of erosion picked up in those years. And it, it certainly has continued onward, which is a great worry to me in terms of the future of, the, of a country like ours in a technocratic world. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, but the good news today is that the NEA has worked its way budget up every year, mainly due to a wonderful organization that I have been in close association with since it began, the Americans for the Arts, which began back in the early 90s and is a bipartisan organization on, you know, like Audubon, mm-hmm. which... Uh, understands that art is part of everybody's persona and privilege. So it's exciting today that it's it's back there. And every and and the NEA has seeded all these communities across the United States. So there's arts in all almost every community that you'll go to that has an NEA grant somewhere. Yeah. You don't have to do the pilgrimage from a small town to a big one to have some fabulous art in your life. 
Absolutely. And that's the exact reason that it was founded, because all the big organizations for dance and theater were situated in the larger cities, most of them in the East Coast. And right. John F. Kennedy and then Johnson, bless his heart. Johnson did a lot of great stuff this way, seeding America with uh, very good social issues. Yeah. So we're coming close to time, and I have to ask you, I know a couple of things you have your fingers in these days, but is there is there a particular cause that ha- has you most passionate these days? And the other question, of course, I'm going to want to ask you is, what great words of advice do you offer to young people who are in their, let's say, early 20s and starting to make their way in whatever their career might be? Because you have you know, a life's worth of experience that's relevant to other lives, regardless of the particular career? Well, I'm a devotee of wildlife on our gorgeous planet, like you. Says the five-year-old many years later. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I got back to birds after after I had a good career and everything. And by the way, I wanted to say, you know, the whole business of exploration, which caught me as a child with the outside world, exploring the garden, the sunken garden that Olmsted had put in, just transitioned to the exploration of the mind and the human body in acting. So it was all to follow what you have given us so great in this podcast about exploration. That's my exploration now. I'm back to birds. I'm back to wildlife protection. I spend a good deal of my time here in Nova Scotia outside documenting the flora and fauna on a daily basis. And it's really deeply satisfying because I feel that we're all put on this earth to witness and experience the joy that we all can give to each other. And that includes all of the things that are growing and living. So that's what I spend most of my time in conservation of creatures and introducing human creatures to this world more and more. (laughs) And if I had anything to say to young people today, I do have a lot to say. I say much too much to my grandchildren, I think. (laughs) But I think they like it too. I say to them, first of all, when you're young in life, find something that will be yours, yours in the arts or yours in science. If you if you don't come upon it, go out and find it. Or maybe somebody that you know in your school, teacher or another student will, will help you find it. Because it's the thing that you will keep in your heart and in your, keep you together for the rest of your life. So the boys chose music. And they're both very good. Now, they're 19 now, but they both have are in bands. It's not going to be their life. They both said they want to do other things. But they will have that with them all their lives. Some scientists that I know, some young scientists, have math or have biology all their lives. And they'll never give it up. So find that one thing that means something to you and that is yours forever. Wonderful. Yeah, that'll be, that's a powerful beacon that'll help guide you to interesting, interesting, fascinating places and really gratifying, gratifying and worthwhile. It's not just about satisfying yourself, but as you've done, you will find pursuing that 
leads to you giving gifts back to the world through the sharing of your passion. Mm, thank you. As you have done so, so wonderfully. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. And you, my God. <laughs> thank you. Icon of, icon of the world here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the yeah. oceans and of the sky and of the <laughs> land. Kathy Sullivan, yes. A woman who just can't make up her mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jane Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. I will threaten to come see you in your Nova Scotia home at some point in time, and we'll carry on this conversation. Thank you so much. I hope you do come. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.